I think if you're like a very early stage DOD company, you will like read the FAR at some point and think, oh my God, there is absolutely no way I understand any of this or ever. And there's a lot of things like that. I mean, I picked the FAR because it's funny. Really, there's so many different contracting vehicles and different program offices and different sets of requirements and so many players involved in absolutely everything that you do. And it can really feel overwhelming a lot of the time. And I think the way around that is with people who have navigated very specific parts I don't consider any of us experts on any part of this, but we do now have a really good network of a whole bunch of local experts on each part of the process. And essentially our job is to piece that together to make a sale and to make a product that's actually going to be really useful, ideally, to operators. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Through our blood and your bonds, we crushed the Germans before he got here. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Then Alex and Isaac from Distributed Spectrum with me today. Let's do a 60-second rundown with all three of you because this is going to be a fun conversation. Ben, why don't you start? Who are you? What do you care about? What's your role in the company? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Ben. I'm currently the COO of Distributed Spectrum. Me, Alex, and Isaac, I'll let them give their introductions. But the three of us founded the company about three years ago now when we were still, uh, you know, undergraduates in school. Pandemic hit. We all really wanted to do something meaningful with, you know, with our time. So we, you know, took a year off from school and started this company. I'm Alex. I'm the CEO of Distributed Spectrum. So we started Distributed Spectrum a little over three years ago now. Basically, we were all undergraduates at Harvard at the time and... We essentially wanted to create a business together and start a company together. And, you know, I had had this concept for my senior thesis project, actually going into my senior year at Harvard to essentially kind of revolutionize the way that we sense and understand the radio environment, use information about what's going on in the radio spectrum to inform both kind of operations on the military side, but also across the commercial domain, understanding if, you know, there's actual problems that you need to address or there's something going on that you need to know about. So. That was kind of the initial concept that we went into starting the company. And then we'll talk a lot more about our journey within the Department of Defense and what we did. But essentially, we all feel very strongly about kind of revolutionizing the way that the Department of Defense senses and understands the radio environment and then building capabilities for the warfighter that are actually effective at what they do and are easy to understand and are easy to use at the tactical level. I'm Isaac. I'm the CTO of Distributed Spectrum. I met Ben the first day of college, uh, we were freshman year roommates and I met Alex, I think maybe also the first day we played Frisbee together. But since then, we've been friends for about, I guess, seven years now and started Distributed Spectrum three years ago. I basically joined this because I had worked in big tech. I had done data analysis and machine learning. I'd also had a research background through some like research internships and projects at Harvard. And none of that was really as exciting to me as making tech. And so like Alex mentioned, we started this completely as a technology idea. Like, what if we could take really low cost hardware and do some pretty advanced signal processing stuff with it? And that'd been a search interest of mine. And then about six months in, and we'll get into this later, we realized that there was a huge unmet need in the Department of Defense for this distributed sensing tech and this like EMS, like spectrum awareness. And so we've been running with that for the last two and a half years. All right. Before we get into the tech side of what your company does, let me get clear on a couple steps in your journey. You said you started the company while in undergrad, right? We were going into our senior year of school and that's when the pandemic hit. And so we were kind of faced with the decision of going into our senior year with virtual school, online classes, which did not really appeal to any of us. And so 
we kind of were presented with the unique opportunity then to decide, hey, we can take time off from school and just try something completely new. And, you know, if it doesn't work, then, you know, that's okay. We'll go back and finish up senior year as planned. But, you know, we were thankfully able to actually find something really cool and meaningful that we all enjoyed doing and cared about, continue that into when we did go back to our senior year and then have since graduated a year ago and are now pursuing your school time. We had also, as I mentioned, we've been friends for a while. All three of us had independently and also as a group talked about starting some company together. I have a note in like my notes doc from I think 2017 that says, and so I think that the pandemic gave us an opportunity to look at, hey, are we really going to waste a year of our life doing school or can we actually start something together? So that was like the impetus for us to start discussing what we might want to do together. And then we landed on sort of history. And we can kind of dive into more details about how we actually got involved with Department of Defense stakeholders and problem sets. But essentially, we weren't even really planning on tackling any defense use cases. It was basically, I think, probably like six months after we founded our company, we just randomly stumbled across this National Security Innovation Network hackathon, just kind of looking around at Google. And we decided to apply to it. And when we applied and got into this hackathon, we started hearing about all these people that are saying, literally, like, this is a life or death issue. Like, I will get shot at if I don't have this type of awareness. I won't be able to conduct my operation safely or meet the objectives that I'm trying to accomplish. So we really saw that kind of, you know, really, really clear demand and need for this type of system. We decided to basically try and work on building out this product specifically for Department of Defense use cases. So you, you shifted, you pivoted from a commercial grab to let's go for defense tech. Yeah, it wasn't exclusively just defense, you know, after we did that hackathon. I think a lot of people warned us early on that bifurcating our business development efforts in between commercial and government sales would probably result in an outcome where we're not as focused as we need to be. So I think, you know, we tried for probably a period of about six months or a year to do both those at the same time and pursue both of those avenues. But we really just saw this insane demand and need from the Department of Defense, and we decided to focus most of our efforts now and what we're doing now on trying to build out our technology with both commercial and defense applications in mind, but pursuing mostly defense business opportunities. Yeah. I heard you say three years old. Can I ask, is this offensive? How old are you? <laughs> Not offensive at all. So I am 24, Ben is 25, and Isaac is 20. Yeah. So early 20s, you start this company, haven't even graduated from Harvard. What did you guys major in? Anything relevant to what you're doing? Yeah, reasonably relevant. I majored in physics. I studied electrical engineering. And I studied computer science. So all three of us are engineers. So it was nice when we started our company because, you know, we had the ability to execute a lot of the technical vision that we wanted to accomplish with our product, especially while it was just the three of us working on it. Now we're in a position where we have, you know, engineers working alongside us. And now we're responsible for doing a lot of the business development, and less so on the tech side. How large is your company? Like how many people do you have working for you? Yeah. So we have six employees right now, including... So we have kind of two leads, one on the machine learning, one on the embedded system side, and then one uh, embedded systems engineer. Okay. So was the hackathon before or after you started the company? So the hackathon was, yeah, was it probably six months into yeah, when we started the company? January 2021. And that largely influences or shapes is what I think I'm hearing, you know, maybe the direction or your target audience or consumer. It completely did. One of the first times, like, you know, we'd been at the start of our company just trying to talk with many different people as possible and just kind of understand, hey, who has problems related to the radio spectrum? Like, who is going to be interested in what we're trying to build? And I think that what really was important about that kind of first touch point with us within, you know, the kind of defense ecosystem was being able to actually interact with some of the end users who told us stories like, hey, 
you know, I'm driving a ground vehicle, we get jammed and I have no idea what's going on. You know, we're not even really use cases that we had thought about, but just being able to actually ask questions, understand and talk to the end users was really impactful and kind of made us really reevaluate, you know, the direction that we want to see the company. And like, you know, the hardest part for any defense tech startup is really getting those first few stakeholders if you're, you know, not an insider and don't have any kind of connections in the industry. So getting that first exposure to both, you know, end users and also just the ability to learn at least a little bit about the contracting process and all the acronyms and what we need to say and what we don't say and other things like that. Like we have entire rants that we can go on about all this stuff. That's an ongoing process. We're definitely yeah. a lot better at it now than we were when we started. And I think like every couple months or so, like I know more now than I do. But. Are you better or yeah, you're going to go nowhere. We'll get back to that. So I'm still enthralled with this startup story there. So after, during the hackathon, did you have a product or did you just have an idea? Because I heard you like, you know, radio spectrum tech or something. Like, did you actually have something or you were still trying to figure out what are we selling or what problem are we solving? Yeah, that's a good question. So we were definitely trying to figure out what we were selling. We had no idea what our packaged product was going to look like. It would be licensed software or a piece of hardware. We didn't know any of that. But we did have a prototype that was doing some basic signal detection and characterization on some really cheap boards. It was like an RTL-SDR and a Raspberry Pi, which together cost, I think, like $50. And so we had a few of those and we had written a bunch of like systems code that can actually get us information from our radio spectrum. And we sort of proved that this idea was actually legitimate at the time. But certainly like we had nothing compared to what we have now. And really like what we'll talk about as we continue the conversation is I think, especially within the Department of Defense, it took us, you know, probably a year and a half to actually figure out how we need to be positioning our products such that we're going to be able to capture contracts in the near term and make meaningful progress towards developing a system that's actually ready to be used operationally, but also not shoot ourselves in the foot long-term and be able to position ourselves in a place where we can actually make this type of sensing ubiquitous across all the services. I'm guessing that after the hackathon, you continued because you sounds like you were drawn to the mission and you found a way to continue to get that end user feedback. Can you talk about that journey? Because it said it took you a year and a half. So did you continue to get that kind of feedback as you were developing whatever your product or your capability is? And how did you get that? Yeah, I think, again, it was innovation-focused entities like the National Security Innovation Network were really the only reason that we were actually able to get those early touch points. Because at that point, we don't have anyone vouching for us saying, hey, I know these guys, like their technology is good. More of just, we need the opportunity to actually get in front of some of these people and develop those relationships ourselves. So without, so we did a few different Ensign programs. We can talk about those, but I think it took us probably three or four programs to actually start getting stakeholders where we could, you know, go and actually show them demos and get them to trust us and understand our technology. So without that kind of early ability to access key decision makers and key stakeholders, I don't think we would have been able to get very far. And I think like every piece of meaningful progress we've made as a company pretty much has come from being able to talk to a new set of end users and either, you know, be able to get feedback that improves our product or just improve our own knowledge about the solution set out there, how we have to tailor our solution, or even just how we have to talk about and describe the types of things that we're doing. Because I think like as a very early company, especially neither of the three of us have any, you know, DOD experience. And so, you know, when we're first starting to come to a customer conversation, people are going to tell immediately, we don't know the acronyms. We don't know how, you know, we're supposed to talk about these things. So it is kind of like a learning feedback cycle of kind of learn how, you know, how to best present yourself. And then that gives you access to be able to talk to more people and then you learn even more. Yeah. You mentioned Ensign programs. 
is it the hacking for defense type of programs? Is that what you were talking about the in terms of the programs that you did? Yeah. So it was the specifically the Ensign Hacks portfolio was the first thing that we did. So that's distinct from hacking for defense. So we did one Ensign Hackathon as that first event that I mentioned. And then we did an Ensign Accelerator called Vector. And then we did another Ensign Accelerator a year ago called. So it was kind of that pathway through at least Ensign that it was your access to Ensign because you were an undergrad as a student, or was it as a startup? So the hackathon that we did, the first one, it was called Mad Hacks, I think looked for university students, but wasn't exclusively limited to them. But it also wasn't through our university that we found them. We just applied and they they accepted us. Yeah, it wasn't like Hacking for Defense where it's a specific a university program. Okay. I'm kind of trying to be very, or my questioning is like very oriented around like this. How did you get to the end user, because you're hitting on a note that is one of the weakest points in the DOD right now, as you're, you probably know and understand right now, where our relationship with industry is so disconnected that there are, the end user is not able to do what you're describing. Like you found a way to do it. And that's why I'm like, how did you do it? Like, and I'm not trying to share your secrets or anything, but it's your maybe more serendipitous way of how you got into it is actually showcasing though that because now you're here and now you're doing something and you have something, but it wouldn't have happened, you know, if certain parts of a system maybe weren't in place to help you along the way. And I guess my point is, you know, we shouldn't make it so hard for individuals like yourself with passion and with a drive and with ideas to get that knowledge so that you can give us amazing offerings and capabilities. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's not so much that the programs in the DoD don't exist for extremely early stage ideas. It's that it's really hard to tell what's early stage and what's not. Like, for example, if you go on an innovation website and you see the DIU and you see Raider and you think, oh, look, it's reaching out to industry and then I have this idea and maybe a TRL3 product and I can, you know, talk to a bunch of stakeholders through that. You're not going to get anywhere. And, and we didn't know that. I mean, we talked to the DIU extremely early, like maybe three weeks into our company. And of course they weren't interested because we didn't have a product that they could commercialize at all. The Ensign was the opposite. And they had this like inroad from a very small company where they were just say, hey, we want to take ideas and we might, you know, identify some transition partner, you know, years down the line. But the first thing we want to do is get you in front of a couple, even just operators, so you can learn how to tailor your tech toward BOD. And so we found Ensign by luck, but they existed. They were there. And I think the other interesting part is, you know, that is not even the entire piece of the story that you need to be successful. Like, obviously, it's extremely helpful to have that access to those end users and be able to figure out how we actually frame our technology such that people understand what we're doing and people trust us. But really, at the end of the day, you also need access to, you know, those key decision makers and program managers and other people that are actually, you know, able to take what you have and put real funding dollars behind that and get people interested in it. So I think that, that piece of the process has also taken us a really long time to figure out, you know, how do we actually get access to these people? How do we translate our end user interest and that trust to develop into something that's actually going to be, you know, long-term successful for the company and allow us to continue to grow? How long did it take you to realize the end user has very little money? Uh, oh, that was pretty early. I don't think so at all. I think for me, it was like maybe like a year and a half, or like two weeks. And I think we're- Oh, still, oh yeah. Okay, yeah. I agree. Like two years ago. It definitely took a while. I think people warned us about it. Like, people are, well, you know, like if you're going into government defense sales, like the sales cycle is really long. It's really, you know, complicated. So you just talk to the end user. They love it. They're so excited. Like, you know, it's the government. They have so much money. And so like we kind of had those big picture ideas. Like, yeah, this is a really hard 
thing to do for a business. But I think it took a while to kind of like put all those pieces together to understand like, okay, here's who all the different characters are. Here's what they can do and what they can't do. And here's how that actually affects our business. There were some funny mishaps with that early on. Like, I think we talked to an 18 Echo like six months into our company and they were like really excited about this low cost distributed RF sensing stuff. And we were like, all right, like, do you want to buy some units? I have no authority to do that. Let's keep talking about the technology. And we didn't realize that it really takes an extremely long time to actually understand all the key players. And we're still getting better at that. I mean, it's only been in the last maybe six months to a year that we felt more comfortable understanding everybody that's involved in even an individual sale. And I think the other piece that really just took us a long time to click was that, you know, like there is a standard of open and fair competition, but whether or not that actually manifests itself as open and fair competition is a completely different thing. And I think it took us a while to figure out that there's a lot of groundwork that we need to lay when we're you know, tossing these applications and proposals over the finish line in order for those to actually be successful and have a positive outcome. So that is still obviously the you know ongoing process that we're continuing to learn. Do you have a government contract? So right now we've been successful at winning things like SBIRs and STTRs, but our near term objectives is getting those first few you know real R&D or procurement contracts for our system. And We've been laying the groundwork for a lot of those. Hopefully some of those are going to start to pay off soon in the near future. But Have you heard the term va- the valley of death? Oh, yes. <laughs> and it really does seem like the valley of death is just, you know, learning that process of figuring out who those actual key decision makers are that you need to talk to and getting them to trust you. And once you do that, then obviously you have the ability to start getting some of these contracts. So, And one of the things that I think kind of goes back to the, you know, you were kind of saying like the serendipity of our path is I think like if we didn't have that full year where we were just like, hey, we're taking a year off from school. We're going to experiment with things. Like, I think if we had graduated and they're like, okay, this is our full-time job. We need to start seeing like tangible progress and tangible results. Like, I think we would have gone through the first three or six months and say, hey, this isn't tractable. Like, we're not figuring out enough. We're not seeing actual results. And so I think it actually really worked well in our favor that like, we just had that built-in experimentation period. We were like, we're just going to learn as much as possible and then figure out what we want to do. Our first big innovation grant took nearly a year to be granted. And if we didn't have that year of, you know, this fallback of we can go back to school and we can do stuff after graduation if distributed section doesn't work out, I don't think it would have. I mean, like that, the NSF grant we applied to in October of 2020, and it was awarded in January of 2022. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And I think the other thing that we can also talk about we took advantage of was we raised a seed round, right? So we were graduating from school. And that has given us a little bit of, you know, security and the ability to kind of think longer term about how we want to position our company such that we can, you know, get these contracts, raise a series A and really scale. So that's definitely been something that I think has been really helpful for us, especially now that we're working full time and we can hire engineers to actually, you know, start to implement more of our technical vision. Man, I'm not sure if I want to go down the acquisition path or the tech path with you. So let's close out the, I'm really curious. How did you find out about Sibbers, for example? I think it was literally just like, Googling around about like the specific like type of technology that we're looking for. I think we found some Google results where it was like SBIR and then it was like colon and this was like something I was like, I don't know what this is, but it seems like it's right up our alley. So we like slowly like started to figure out like, oh, okay, like I guess this is just like kind of an innovation grant that's like designed to get, you know, startups to take early stage tech and start to transition it. So first one of those that, that we applied for was through the National Science Foundation. So that was pursuing a much more commercial focused system. But as Isaac mentioned, you know, it took a really long time to get that. But once we actually got that, that was kind of our first, you know, real revenue into the company other than a subcontract that we did. So that really helped us, you know, both have the 
money to essentially build out this technology while we were still in school and like, you know, really trying to work on the tech side of things. And also just gave us that first little bit of initial security about, okay, like, you know, we can actually, you know, pay ourselves to do this and we can't actually sustain ourselves. So yeah. Do you have any DOD sibbers or sitters? Yeah. Yes. Yes, we do. Yeah. Which service did you get it from? Uh, they've all been AFWORK so far. Okay. Are they phase one or phase two? Both. Both? So do you know, so you have a pathway now, right? So sibbers, I don't know if anyone's talked to you about this. Like you do have a pathway to phase three, right? Not your competition is done with your sibber phase one or two. The challenge you'll have is depending on who the phase three partner is, no one's going to, no one's going to help you find a phase three partner. It sounds like you're connected. You have lots of relationships. You could potentially get there potentially with your end user. You have to know who cares about your end user, who controls your end users resourcing on the acquisition side. You were talking about this. Once you, if you can find those right levers or divisions of labor that can get you to phase three, then the next hurdle, like if we're talking about actual contract execution, not every contracting shop knows how to do phase three SIBR awards. Not gonna lie. So I don't know if that's something you've been discussing or, but I just wanted to give you that tip as well. So you, you're going to have to become the expert just in case. It's a really good tip because I think, so we just started performing on a SIBR phase two literally a few weeks ago. And I think that, you know, if this had happened even like six or mo nine months earlier, I think we'd be in a much, much worse position to actually transition that to a phase three. And I think like right now for this one, you know, we are in contact with the program office. We've been having a conversation with them. Like, I think, you know, we are going to try and figure out how we can tailor the progress of the SIBR so it can actually be transitioned to that phase three. But I think like that is just a culmination of the last, you know, year of learning that has gotten us to now. We're like, oh, okay, maybe we actually understand how to actually move this forward. Where if we'd gotten this last year, I think it would have been, we would have crashed into the valley. Yeah. I, I think that for a while, we were hearing things about how hard it is to get a sole source justification. And once you get that, everything is easy. And And I don't, really subscribe to that at all. I think like, yes, it's great. We have a phase two, we now have sole source and we can have, we have a path toward phase three, but the real hard part is what are the requirements and what parts of our system meet, which parts of the requirements and how do we match that up with actual dollars that are coming down the community on this contract vehicle? Because if our contracting shop that we're working doesn't want to use phase three and they want to use an OT, fine, we'll use an OT. We don't care. It's really about figuring out the requirements and how they match up to our tech. And like, as a concrete example of that, we have had two selectable, but not funded direct phase two proposals. So we've had contracting vehicles available for a while that we could have end users put funds on to help develop the system and tailor it to their use cases. But, you know, we are still in the process of laying that groundwork to actually get those customers interested in putting up some funds towards those existing contract vehicles. So even before we get to that phase three, you know, we still have this opportunity to use those other vehicles. I'm going to give you some free advice. I don't know if this is the right characterization of it, but a dirty secret. So you're using some some technical terms in my field. So you said justification and approval. Some people, and so whoever is, maybe once you're ready to cross that valley of death, you have the right person has identified funds and now they're looking for that contracting mechanism. They're going to say, we need to do a JNA for this. And that is not true. There's no, by statute and policy, there's nothing that requires a JNA. However, some people have elected to default to what they are familiar with. And when you're doing SIBRs, you don't have to do traditional procurement contracts, which has a lot of rules, regulations, and there's a lot of structure and compliance-oriented things that are happening. And when you're doing SIBR Phase 3, there's an SBA policy that says you do not have to do that. You've already met the standard of competition 
And some people still feel like they have to do a JNA. And this is where, again, you have to kind of know that. You have to know the policy. Go read the SBA policy for Sivers and help your whoever your client is understand that, you know, that is not a requirement. And just ask good questions. Like, you know, you're obviously not in the seat to make the decision, but just ask them, why is this happening now? Why is it being required? Some people have implemented it as a policy, like a local policy to their local contracting unit or command or something like that. And if that's the case, that's just unfortunate. And you're just going to have to like, right, bear down and work through them, give them whatever information they need to complete their JNA. And that will likely delay your timelines. But those are the things that I'm talking about in terms of getting you can find the money and you're going to have to do all that hustle, you know, find the right people and maybe help them find the money. And then cutting the contract is the next part that we had. An, actually, I'm probably going to send you a link to a previous podcast episode where Vince Pecorero, he's a, an excellent program manager at the Digital Transformation Office. He talked about industry being the knowledge source. You're going to have to be that knowledge source for your client. I'm not going to belabor that. I just wanted to give that to you right here in this moment. I want to talk about your tech now. What are you selling? Like you mentioned, and you've been, it sounds like you've been iterating or ideating for a while. And now you have Sibbers. What is it that you're offering now that you're trying to like go into a phase three potentially that could potentially scale and, and have that mission impact you were looking for three years ago? Yeah. So our platform or our product we call RF Vision is essentially a system that produces situational awareness in the radio spectrum at tactical level. So basically, RF vision consists of algorithms that operate at the edge on things like end user devices or edge computing devices that are available. And these algorithms ingest information from sensors that can scan the radio spectrum. So oftentimes things like software defined radios. And basically those algorithms describe essentially all of the emissions that they're seeing. They describe things about what they're doing, what the likely source is, what that signals essentially look like. And then the other piece of that is we build extremely easy to use software and interfaces that allow people, potentially even with very little technical knowledge about radio, to take that stream of data that's coming from our algorithms and ask questions about the radio spectrum, in a very non-technical and easy to use manner at the operational level. So that could be things like, hey, push me an alert out on ATAP every time I see a ground-based radar system. Or if I detect a MAC address that I've seen you know, twice in the past day, let me know about that. Or if I detect an emission that's associated with this particular type of IoT device that I care about, save that to disk. So it's really, really simple kind of actionable objectives that people are looking to accomplish but don't really have a way to that we can enable directly at the technical level. And the other thing that I just want to give a bit more context on is like what we're actually looking at in the radio spectrum and what that entails. Because it is not just, you know, like a handheld radio or an FM radio station. Pretty much, you know, every type of wireless device out there is going to be using the radio spectrum to communicate. So if you think about cell phones, laptops using Wi-Fi, uh, drones were being controlled from a ground station, radars, Alex mentioned, Bluetooth devices, like pretty much anything wireless is all using the same core technology to function. And that is kind of the raw signals that we're picking up and then processing at the edge and then kind of providing that easy interface for people to just kind of ask questions. Of. So yeah, during like the past, you know, 20 or 30 years during the global war on terror, we have, you know, pretty permissive environment to fly planes around, to conduct electronic warfare, to try and snoop on things. And basically, you know, this very old kind of 50 to 60 year old electronic warfare technology was fine in that environment because it wasn't really contested. You know, you could wait a year to detect a new transmitter would be that big of a deal. But obviously now as we transition into an era of great power competition, 
everything is happening much, much faster. So a lot of these old kind of processes and hardware and mechanisms that have currently been in place are simply not going to cut it to be able to produce that level of awareness that we need to actually stay safe on the battlefield and accomplish operational objectives. What's an example of, you said, old processes or basically there's some kind of legacy tech or model? What is that? Because I'm not an end user, I'm not an operator. So what are you changing? What is the status quo that you're hoping to change? Yeah. So like, here's a very concrete example of that. So basically all or most of the systems that are out there that the Department of Defense uses do just a baseline level of detecting certain types of emissions. They have kind of a pre-programmed list of transmitters they're capable of detecting and looking for. So you can select, okay, let me know anytime I see this type of transmitter. And it'll do that and accomplish their job. But the second that you need to detect something new that potentially has different characteristics than something you've seen, these systems are not flexible at all. They have this predefined list. So the end users that are actually, you know, experiencing these types of emissions they need to see have to go back to these, you know, large companies that produce these systems and say, hey, I need you to modernize the system to detect this type of train. That could take six months. It could take three years. It's just this horrible process of getting, you know, a contract in place, getting them to update it, getting the new system shipped out in the field. It's just, you know, you can't wait three years to detect something new. So one of the core principles that we baked into our system from the beginning is the ability to fingerprint essentially many different types of transmitters in real time, and then be able to instantly detect those without having to do some type of long retraining process where you have to collect a lot of data or try and, you know, really figure out. So the funny thing is, so Alex mentioned the six long process. In our demo to customers right now, we have a about three minute long process that does exactly that. Or you say, here's a transmitter that is not in your previous list of transmitters. Go find it, make a label for it, and send an automated alert for when that transmitter is on or when it's off, and that's it. And end users, even without any technical background, are able to do that in about five. And I think one of the key kind of distinctions that we're going for is a lot of this legacy technology is very based around the hardware. So you buy, you know, a really exquisite piece of hardware that, you know, costs $10 million and weighs 200 pounds, and you can, you know, stick that in a vehicle, stick that on a plane, and that it will do a very good job at the specific thing that that hardware has been built for. And then obviously, as Alex Nasdaq was saying, if there's any change, like, okay, you know, this adversary has changed the type of waveform that they use. There's a new radar that they're trying to use. Like, it is all hardware fixes or, you know, hardware JSON fixes that, you're not, that you have to then make to be able to update your technology. And so with, you know, the, the just advances in modern technology, we are able to then really shift the focus to the software. And so all of the hardware that we're using is not exquisite stuff. It is commodity, commercial off the shelf, you know, software defined radios that cost like, you know, hundreds or maybe low thousands of dollars. And then we're writing all the software that runs on top of that, that is then able to be really flexible to run all these advanced algorithms out, out of the edge. And so it's really kind of capitalizing on how good computing powers become that, you know, for such a small amount of money, you can get a really powerful computer, then flexibly do all of that. And that puts us in a position where we can add this intelligence layer on top of these existing platforms that, you know, need some modernization, but that has to happen really slowly. Or we could also integrate with really, really inexpensive, just commercial off the shelf things you can literally buy on Amazon and stick together into, you know, a sensor basically. So we can operate in both regimes, which gives us the ability to be a little bit more flexible about how we're deploying our software. So is your core offering a software product and you, it, I think I heard you say you can integrate to your agnostic to hardware or you can sell it as a hardware software set. I'm seeing head nods. Yep, that's, that's exactly right. So our vision for our company is to be the software layer. Like we're not hardware experts. Our entire team is built, on, built around really being really good at 
real-time signal processing and analysis and alerting and having really nice, easy-to-use interfaces. But because of the way that the DoD buys right now, it's a lot easier to sell a couple test units to get people excited and, and understand how this actually could work. And then at scale, we think that we'll work with some integration. Got it. I think I'm hearing you say we want exquisite software on cheap hardware. And if that's kind of the direction you're building your model, I think that's the right direction. I think that's the department is going because it also realizes it has a ton of technical debt, right? So not like the legacy stuff is not going away overnight, you know, so you have to consider that. I think it's super cool. You went from an idea to starting a company in three years and you did it while you were in college. It sounds like you're very much going through the maybe not normal wickets, but you know, you are very early in your learning journey, but you have I mean, you guys have accomplished a ton in just three years. Like, really, some companies, you know, take way longer to even get a sipper. So, I mean, congratulations to that. I'm excited. I'm encouraged because you are the story. Like, stories like yours are what we need more of. We need more people. We need more. Innovation has no age. But I jokingly say, like, no one's innovating at the Pentagon. We need we need our industrial base, too. But we need more. We need to expand the industrial base to startups. And I think you guys are an incredible example and showcase of that. I want to give you the last word. I want you to think about this. So now you're speaking more to the audience, less to me, maybe about your journey. And maybe if you have some tips that you want to share with other startups or something you want to share for encouragement or something, you know, because you guys have a unique perspective on what you've seen, especially because you have a strong relationship with the end user. So Ben, let's start with you. We'll just go down the line. Ben, what do you want to share with the audience? How about your journey or what you've learned? Yeah. And this kind of goes back to to one of the things we've been talking a lot is that it all revolves around kind of, you know, not only the end user, you know, obviously the other people within the department that's yet to talk to, but it always comes back to the people. I think that is kind of how we've always centered how we're going to prioritize things. And I think that's also where most of the progress that we've had as a company comes from. And so, you know, what I would say to and people that we want to talk to is other young founders who are trying to evaluate like, you know, hey, is this the type of market? Is this the type of space that I can actually be helpful in that I can create something that's actually, you know, meaningful to people? I think that's the biggest piece of advice is just to talk to as many people as possible. You know, even if you don't really know who they are, or how they can connect. We've just seen, you know, both for our own learning, for the success of the company, you know, by far that be the, you know, the biggest lever that we can pull is just try to create as many conversations as possible. Try to just be pushy about like, hey, please introduce me to other people. Please let me talk to other people. I think that's by far the biggest thing. Yeah. And I was going to say something kind of similar along those lines, which is one thing that has been very, very helpful for us throughout our journey is reaching out to other defense tech founders who have, you know, created a business that's maybe a year or two more advanced than us. And that has given us the ability to really ask the kind of questions that we're wondering about in the moment and actually figure out, okay, like here's what we should be doing and like here's the wrong way to do it. So I think the, you know, defense tech startup ecosystem is really starting to grow and is really starting to take off. We've seen a lot of interest both kind of from the venture capital side, but also just from, you know, founders wanting to do this. So it's something that people, you know, love to talk to other startups about. So anybody that's interested in, you know, doing this type of thing should definitely just try and find as many people to talk to on LinkedIn and try and find other founders who are in general, you know, very happy to provide advice and help. So, and the thing I'll add on to that quickly is like, we're available for that as well. If there are any people who are maybe, you know, have been doing this for a year or two and are, are looking for more, you know, other people to talk to, like we're there and, and happy to talk. Yeah. I think the final thing I'll say is it's really easy to get discouraged at many points along the way by how complex everything is. 
I think if you're like a very early stage DOD company, you will like read the FAR at some point and think, oh my God, there is absolutely no way I understand any of this or ever. There's a lot of things like that. I mean, I picked the FAR because it's funny. Really, there's so many different contracting vehicles and different program offices and different sets of requirements and so many players involved in absolutely everything that you do. And it can really feel overwhelming a lot of the time. And I think like Ben and Alex have said, the way around that is with people who have navigated very specific parts so like, I don't consider any of us experts on any part of this, but we do now have a really good network of a whole bunch of local experts on each part of the process. And essentially our job is to piece that together to make a sale and to make a product that's actually going to be, you know, really useful, ideally to operators. And that's the part that, you know, to me, when I keep that in my mind, that we're actually making some technology that can save lives or missions or things like that makes me want to keep doing this because like, I can't think of a better place for a founder to be other than like, you know, creating something of value for. Okay. You guys are so great. I have one more question for each of you. What would you like to see differently or what can people like me do more of to help startups like yourself? And this can be a group answer or we can go down the line again. It, your choice. But I think that's a prudent point. One of the things, again, that I've talked about that has been most challenging for us is talking to people at the programmatic side. Because, you know, it is possible to get access to end users and talk to end users, but it is extremely challenging to find those inroads to talk to people that actually hold the requirements and have an understanding of, you know, what's going on from the program side. What are they actually looking for down the road? So some type of resource that basically, you know, makes that easier for startups or even just some type of like meetup or community that allows startups to actually ask those questions to program managers is, I think, really the only thing that's going to make these companies actually be successful long term is like, you don't have an understanding of what the requirements are, there's just no you know, way that your product is going to succeed. And that's something that's just taken us a while to be able to actually, you know, get to have this conversation. Yeah, I think furthermore, this is something that like big defense tech really doesn't understand. Because if you're, you know, Raytheon and you want to compete on a contract, you already know every single person that's involved in the sale and you know exactly like what requirements have existed, probably because you lobbied for them and you know exactly what's written, how your system compares, how all the other three systems that are here. And the total contract value might be, you know, $100 million. As a startup, you don't even know the product offerings that you're competing against, even if it's for something that's like a phase three. There's still a program manager trying to fit you into other product offerings that they're, you know, constantly competing for. And so it's something that, you know, we're slowly learning how to do mostly through network. But none of these requirements sometimes are classified. But if they're not classified, that could be open information that would be really useful for people who are building tech to understand where they fit into the ecosystem. The other kind of way that I'll take this is I think sometimes, and this is, you know, related to what Alex and I have been saying, I think sometimes with a lot of the earlier stage or, you know, more innovation focused groups, it can kind of be unclear what the outcome of things are, what people are actually looking. And so I think like, obviously there's going to be a range of different outcomes for a range of different programs and you know, there are different goals for everything. But I think like one example that I think is really good is, you know, like the Army X tech search. They do a great job of saying like, you know, here's exactly how this program is going to run. And the end result, you know, if you reflect it, it's going to be the stage two server that then we're going to help you try and transition going forward. And so I think that's like, you know, if you're making a business decision about like, you know, how much do we want to focus on this opportunity? It's easy to kind of make that calculation and figure out what it's worth to you. But I think there are a lot of other opportunities that pop up where both obviously, you know, in terms of monetary value, but also in terms of end user engagement, in terms of, you know, like in-person testing, in terms of programmatic engagement it's never really clear exactly what a lot of these different parameters are. And so that just adds to the uncertainty of like, you know, what is worth our time? How can we kind of optimize for the success of the company? Awesome. 
You guys have been a true pleasure to talk to. I greatly appreciate everything you're doing. Good luck with the Valley of Death. I'll give you the same offer you gave everybody else. If you're looking for some unofficial advice or something, feel free to call me up as well. And I think there's a lot to be said about some of the successes in your story, as well as some of the areas where you've kind of highlighted some challenges for us to consider. So thanks again for taking some time to talk to me. We appreciate you. Well, thank you so much for having us on, Bonnie. And also, you know, of course, thank you for for all the work you and your team are doing on the trade with Marketplace. Um, you know, obviously, we think things like that are, are going to you know only be a, a huge help to to other startups like us. So thank you as well. Thank you.